0: Hi, I'm Will Jarvis. And I'm Will's dad. We both love and are fascinated by stories. Stories about people. Stories about places. And stories about events. Our stories give shape and form to
1: life. They give texture, color, and rhythm to the blank canvas that every
0: new day presents to us. And they do that by informing us of our past as a directional marker for our future. Okay, Will, it's narrative time.
1: Tell me a story. Welcome to Narratives. This is Will's dad. This is Will. It's good to see you. It's been a while since we've sat down. has been a bit. Yeah. And we've got an interesting subject today. Yes. A bit ambitious.
0: Yes. It's a a paper by the San Francisco Federal Reserve Bank called The Rate of Return of
1: Everything. The Rate of Return of Everything. Not just some things, not the most important things, but... Everything everything that 's right, and it 's also got the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System on their their names on it too yeah, it does so tell
0: us this, uh, tell us what the Federal Reserve is. Federal Reserve is a interestingly it 's a private bank, but it 's um, set up to maintain the stability of the u s economy, maintain full employment prevent you know runaway inflation and bank runs um so it's it was actually um it's chairman is appointed by the president confirmed by the senate i want to say um and it's like a quasi federal government institution it's supposed to be independent and it's supposed to just like make sure things run well in the economy Uh,
1: And so there's four major functions of the Federal Reserve.
0: Uh, The first one is it controls the money supply. That sounds important. That is important. Yes. So that's important because the supply of money affects all kinds of different things. So during the Great Depression, there's a big uh, money supply shock. So there was like, actually, this is my view a little bit, but there's a great economist called Scott Sumner at the University of Wisconsin-Madison that talks about this a lot um there's like a big deflationary shock and they should have actually injected more liquidity into the economy but they didn't and the depression ended up just as bad as it was so maintaining the money supply and making sure there's enough money flowing around is really important for a functioning economy so uh,
1: another uh um obstacle the federal reserve wrestled with was the um, downturn in 2007-2008. That's right. That's right. And so they must have had an idea that they need to inject liquidity into the market, did they?
0: Uh, Yeah, yeah. So th- there's they should have. They should have done it faster, and they didn't do it aggressively enough actually in 2008, and that actually contributed to a lot of the problems we had.
1: Yeah, and if you listen to because uh, the next big – uh, obstacle would have been the pandemic, and and, and the, when you listen to them on the podcast and in the news, uh, where uh, representatives from Federal Reserve appeared, um, they'll they'll say that they realize they needed not only to inject money, they need to inject it fast. Speed was a problem two thousand seven,
0: two thousand eight. Yeah, it, hilariously, um, they're kind of solving for the right crisis. So I think their response was perfect for. Um, 2008 crisis, like the response for the, towards the pandemic would be would have been perfect in 2007 2008 in terms of speed and and volume and, and size. Um, I think hilariously, um, it, it probably wasn't exactly what we needed here, but you know they're they're doing what they can. And in reality, all the money we threw at the problem, and this is more on the fiscal side, not on the, the Fed side, which is monetary policy. On the fiscal side, all the money should have gone towards containing the virus and getting rid of that because there wasn't like a problem in the real economy other than the fact that there's this crazy virus running around.
1: It, it, it does seem like that the speed thing was that was, if it wasn't perfectly done, it was probably better done because they realized that, you couldn't vet everyone fast enough and decide who need the money. You just need to get the money out there to as many people as you can and then try to sort out some of the other problems later.
0: So, yeah, that's on the fiscal side towards uh, the big stimulus package. Um, but that's different. That's a little bit different than what the Fed did. Um, that's not the Fed. That's like the federal government like spending-wise. They did get money out the door, although the Fed did a ton of emergency lending, overnight lending to make, make sure everyone had liquidity when things – you know, when the I remember the market sitting on my couch and Durham, it was kind of cold, and the market's going handle down, handle down, handle down, which is like, you know, whenever the market goes down 5%, they like shut it off a little bit. And It's just like, oh no, we're shutting it off again and again and again. <laughs> like, whoops. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, they, but they were quick to act, um, you know, kind of like Tony Montana. I think I tweeted out this is, uh, Jerome Powell's the head of the Fed, J Powell, and, uh, Fed chairman and he was kind of like going Tony Montana on top of the pile of coke at the end of Scarfakes with all, all the liquidity injections this is like everything he had kind of going nuts
1: okay uh, another function um, one of the major functions is uh, of the Fed is to regulate financial institutions yeah they do that too they give them rules yes try to make them behave yep follow the rules um, they also manage uh, check clearing uh, procedures that's right that's Isn't interesting it in itself, yeah. another big banking function. Um, uh, and they supervise the uh, FDIC. That's right. For commercial banks. Yes, yeah,
0: so that's the bank-run prevention kind of. So if you have less than a quarter million dollars in a bank, um, they it's backed by the federal direct insurance. What is it? Corporation. Deposit insurance.
1: Federal deposit I would have to look that up. Yeah, okay, I can't quite remember the acronym, but, but you see it on all the stickers when you—they're on the doors on the sticker yeah. of, on, on the banks, and you know that's what protects your money up to a quarter million dollars. In your yeah, account.
0: yeah. So the federal government will guarantee the deposit up to that amount, which is—you know—not all banks have that across the world. It's important to remember. Yeah. Okay. That—that's to prevent um, in panics. So, you know, we both personally know someone who showed up at a. At a bank and withdrew all their cash at, during two thousand eight. You know, and like it, it's to prevent that from happening. <laughs> that from happening, um, the central bank
1: of the United States—that's what the Federal Reserve System is. It's the it's the uh, central bank of the United States. Yes, so that in itself should tell us how important and big it is. Yes, right. So that's who who wrote this paper or this treatise on the rate of return of everything.
0: Yep, it's a paper. Um, it's quite interesting. It, it details. Uh what what returns um over time that each asset class is average. So they covered um, T bills. Is that correct? Uh, Treasury bills. bills yes, bills, that's right. And then bonds, real estate, and equities. Equities and equities are equities are pieces of companies. Stocks. I think yes, of pieces so of companies. Stocks. Yes, so, so,
1: yeah. yeah. And uh th- th- the scope of this is they studied 16 advanced e- economies from 1870
0: to 2015, just about 150 years. That's right. So it's a limited data set of what they could kind of get their hands on. Uh, always important to remember when setting off on these ventures, you know, it's, it's there's limitations of what you can actually look at and what's available. Um, it's like Australia, a um, bunch of other advanced OECD countries, I'd say. From 1870 to today. What what are OEDC countries? Um, Advanced developed countries, essentially. Okay.
1: Um, So it covered those four classes. Um, And and surprising to me, the one that they had the most trouble digging out was uh, information historically about housing. And the other thing that surprised me is about that is that housing is about 50% of the national wealth in a typical economy. That
0: really surprised me. Yeah, it's interesting. I guess the habitats where people live uh, make up quite a bit of economic activity in general.
1: Yeah, and it tells you a lot like when there's a housing crisis, why the whole economy in the world shakes. Yeah. On the the margin, it can really matter. Yeah. That's, That's really important. Okay. Um, now you want to talk a little bit because this comes up one of the things they really studied intently uh, was secular stagnation you want to talk about secular stagnation sure so
0: secular stagnation Secular stagnation is the idea that essentially since 1970 or so, there's a great website, I don't, I'll have to put a link in the description, um, called um, What Happened in 1970. And it's all about how in 1970 uh, growth rates started slowing down um, and then we've been stuck in kind of this, uh, this funk of low growth for a very long time. Um, there's a number of reasons why this may be happening. Um, I've got my own thoughts. A bunch of people have their different their own thoughts, and, and whether or not it's a fixable problem is is interesting. I think it's always good to look at Western Europe as kind of maybe 20 years ahead of where we are in certain spe- aspects um, along these lines. Um, and, and I think it, it's important because... Economic growth has really slowed down over the past you know forty fifty years and and that has direct consequences on our political life our day to day life um, how we approach the world in ways i I think people really don't realize so for example, on the political front um, there's some sense in which things have gotten really weird partisan, crazy. Um, going all the time now, right? Like, so you see, like, this crazy partisanship. Everybody's at each other's throats. And I think this is actually a symptom, not a cause. I'm a big believer on the fact that this is a symptom, not a cause. A lot of people, even academics, will say, well, this is, like, a cause, not a symptom. And I think that's, like, this huge mistake. Like, it doesn't make logical sense to me. Although I do tend to – I do have this bias. I think people are, like, kind of trying to do the best they can. And are just getting incentivized into these weird things. There are bad people, but that's on the margin. Um. So, why do I think this is a a, a symptom of, of low growth? So I think democracies, especially a huge democracy like the United States, you know, we're probably we're the biggest democracy. I would say, correct? Probably I'm trying to think. Yeah, you know, you can always kind of bunch Europe together now, but it's kind of a different thing even then I think they'd be slightly smaller so with 350 million people all kinds of different people from different places you know America is not a very homogeneous place compared to most countries right Like, so most countries are small in terms of numbers they usually um, have one ethnic group so like in Denmark most people are Danes things like that they tend to like more of the same things America is like super varied. Like you go to new Orleans and then you go to like, you know, Raleigh and they feel like different places. Um, All this is less true in big cities, cities nowadays, but you know, there's a lot, there's a lot more variation in people preferences, attitudes, et cetera. Um, So why is that important? Well, if you're trying to run this, this country and keep everybody together um, democracies really work well with the pies growing So if the pie is growing each year, we can all sit down at the table and we can all split it up in different ways and everybody gets more than last year. And even though sometimes it might not be exactly equal, everybody's getting more than last year, so we're kind of happy. As the pie gets bigger more slowly, um, there's less to divide up amongst us and that, to me is what's really going on, is that there's less to divide up, and so people are uh, more desperate to kind of uh, claim their share of the pie. So that's one of the things the paper um, they,
1: they looked at was that the growth rate of the economy is relative to the rate of return of capital. And the reason that that's important is because it affects wealth, affects income, and it affects inequality. So um, that growth rate and rate of return, when the, we say that this, this this is really important, the rate of return of everything, it, it's not only um, important because um, it affects somebody that wants to make some money on, an, on, on some capital they have. It affects people because if, uh, if they're looking at their retirements and they're saving for that, or if they are retired, they can't make money on their capital so they can support themselves.
0: Yes, although, although super important um, uh, distinction here, there's a difference between um, the rate of return of these asset classes and the rate of return, um, like the growth rate of the real economy. These are two separate things. And so also the paper talks about um, the rate of return of these asset classes may be higher than, Like the rate of return to labor so capital is like let's just describe capital quickly so capital is anything that you you know makes you money so land there's human capital capital if you have a machine that spits out apples you can sell that's capital um and then labor is like doing things yourself right like so going out and shoveling would be labor um this is uh, the theme of uh, a big book that came out in 2015, 2016, somewhere long then, um, called Capital, and Capital in the 21st Century, I believe. Was it Capital? It may just be Capital, I can't quite remember, by Piketty, Piketty, I'm gonna butcher the French here. Um, he's a French economist, and his idea was that the returns on capital are higher than the returns on labor, and maybe this is getting worse. Um, and that's a big problem for inequality. So the people that own capital keep getting richer and the people that, um, just have their labor are kind of like stuck or stagnant or maybe heading backwards. And you see this in like real wage growth over the past, since 1970, it's fairly stagnant. And, um, you know, inflation's like a weird metric, right? So if you lump like TVs together with essential goods, like healthcare and, um, Education, you could like draw this trend line. You know, TVs are getting like super cheap, they're getting a lot cheaper. Cars are like maybe getting a little bit cheaper, but then the essential goods people need, like so education, which is a proxy for mobility in our society, it's getting much more expensive, and healthcare is getting much more expensive as well, keeping people alive. So when you look at those two things, it kind of paints a bit of a grim picture at the end of the day. So that's kind of the distinction between, you know, growth rate um, the real economy, and then the rate of return to these capital, to to capital, which we're talking about, so these so different
1: asset classes. What is, what is the impact on rate of return of capital for inequality? I mean, I can, does it mean that the top gets pushed forward faster than the bottom? Is that where the, the increases
0: inequality? Yes. Yeah, so, if the rate of return of capital is higher on average, um, that will make the rich richer and 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 make inequality worse.
1: Now, if that's true, does it mean that the relative position of the bottom sinks lower or it just doesn't
0: improve as quickly? So, yeah, it's tough. It, so th- like there's always trade-offs. Um, there's always trade-offs. That's the important thing to remember. So there's um there's a great thought experiment by Robert Nozick and it's uh it's a Wilt Chamberlain. It's it's like called the Wilt Chamberlain example, I think, or something. But it, it involves Wilt Chamberlain. So you imagine we have like a group of five hundred people. So who's your favorite basketball player? We'll summon Wilt Chamberlain. Michael he's- Jordan. So Michael Jordan, and Michael Jordan is in the audience. Um and we all want to see Michael Jordan play. But Michael Jordan, he's really tired of playing basketball, doesn't really wanna do it. So we all chip in, you know, a dollar. And so there's a 100 of us. So Michael Jordan gets $99 to, um, let's say we all had $1. Just like this thought experiment. we all had $1, even Michael. So Michael gets $99. Now he's got $100. Um, and he goes and plays basketball. And we're all like, whoa, we get to see it. And it's like so excited. He ducks the basketball, sticks his tongue out. It's awesome. Um, so, we, like, he's got all this money now and it's vastly unequal, right? Because everyone else has no money but we all get this like utility from seeing Michael Jordan play basketball and we wanted it because we voluntarily gave him the dollar. We didn't have to do it. Um, so, you know, voluntary exchange can create um, unequal outcomes, if that makes sense, in different ways even though we're all better off which is important to think about. There's also this uh, trade-off between the size of the pie and how much we grow the pie and how equal the pie is. So we, you can get more growth and, uh, but the people at, at the top will be much richer than the people at the bottom. Um, even though you can have this, it's called a something being Pareto optimal. So Pareto optimal means we can both gain like, so we do a transaction and we both gain, um, Which is important. So, like economists love Pareto out like outcomes because um, we both gain. Even though you might gain a lot more than I do, Um, so it it could be. So, it's probably the case that you can have higher growth rates, and um, but the trade-off is that it's more unequal. Now, the people at the bottom are absolutely much better well-off, and and some of this is like a preference, pure preference thing. So, I like to ask this question: Would you rather be? you know, a middle-class person today in America, or would you rather be Cornelius Vanderbilt? I would rather be a middle-class American today. So, yeah, you can tell a lot about how people, like, think about inequality and how much they value it, how they answer that question. So I would like to be a middle-class person because I think you're much better off in terms of just raw health care. Like, entertainment, I think, is a lot better. I think some people value positional, like this is just their inbuilt preference. They value positional status a lot more than like raw. And like that probably pans out on like political beliefs too. than raw like well-being. So I think like being a middle-class person would be much more enjoyable than um, being Cornelius Vanderbilt and like not having like ibuprofen and crap like that. Like, you know, like these things are worth a lot to me. But some people really value status and positional status and would much rather be Cornelius Vanderbilt. And I think people that would rather be Vanderbilt and have the Biltmore estate and like all this stuff tend to um, be more concerned about the inequality question because, you know, all things being equal, not everybody can be Cornelius Vanderbilt, but we can get a lot more people to the middle-class standard of living uh, theoretically than, than... So, you know, what's achievable? And my thought is, you know, if, if you answer you got to be a middle class person, well, that's like, man, then this growth is good and the inequality we've experienced because Cornelius Vanderbilt, you know, it, it was much less unequal then. Like, he was a rich person, but he was not like Bill Gates or Warren Buffett rich um, relatively. Like, people get are, are much richer now. Jeff Bezos, like, on paper, his wealth is so much more than Cornelius Vanderbilt could ever dream about. Um, So like, there's these trade-offs, right? So there's trade-offs between inequality and growth. I tend to think growth is much more important because one, I don't think our democracy really works without it. Two, I think there's all these other gains you get um, such as ibuprofen. You know, ibuprofen hadn't been invented. Like, it's a huge benefit to me and it did create you know, some unequal outcomes for the guy who invented it, but we did end up better off in the long run. So what you're telling me is that
1: more important question seems to be growth in inequality.
0: Well, I personally believe that, but I could see how someone would be more concerned about inequality yeah. because uh, you know, people that care more about positional status than I do would be more concerned about inequality.
1: We probably make the point when we say that, we don't mean that we're unconcerned with the people at the bottom. That, those are the ones I actually think are the most important consideration because everybody else can kind of fend for themselves. You can worry about your position and whether you're driving a Chevrolet or Mercedes Benz. I'm really worried about the guy that might
0: be riding, not even have a bicycle. It's very Rossian of you. <laughs> Explain that. So uh, it's very Rossian. So uh, John Rawls had this experiment called thought experiment called the veil of ignorance. So the idea behind the veil of ignorance was that whenever you evaluate like a certain policy, you're trying to think about what we should do, you should always imagine that you're um, go behind the quote unquote veil of ignorance and imagine you are the least well off person in society and evaluate it like that. Um, so a lot of people think like this, um, and the the answer would be what matters more. Is it the absolute position or is it the relative position? Does absolute or relative? So, like, relatively to, like, a, a, the poorest person today compared to Jeff Bezos is much farther off than, you know, probably the poorest person was when Cornelius Vanderbilt was alive and uh, Cornelius Vanderbilt or, you know, um, J.P. Morgan, someone like that. However, the poorest person, or let's say the lowest quartile, it's easier to think about, is probably significant is significantly better off than in absolute terms than the person in 1900. Um, so, just trade offs. Again, it's like trade offs between these two. I tend to think you know the absolute position is much more important, but there are a lot of people who who care a lot more about it. I, I think. I'd like to think about it like this, and I think this may help you grok something. So let's say you and I are walking down the street. You know, we both spot a $20 bill at one, the same time. I pick it up. I give you one cent. I keep $19.99. How would you feel?
1: If you saw it first, I just I would feel like that's just that's we, just. We yours.
0: both saw it, saw it at the same time. If we saw at
1: the same time, well, then I think you ought to split it with me. If, exactly. Everything being equal. Everything being equal. And what, nothing what would you ever think? is.
0: But <laughs> How would you feel if uh, I took $19.99 and gave you a cent?
1: Uh, then I, I that would feel like that's not fair. Exactly. Even
0: though you're a better off. Yes. I, even you though are I'm in absolute off. terms better off. So I think that this is important in understanding people's psychology about why um, they are concerned about it is because, like, it's that example right there. It's like if I give you a penny, yes, you are better off, but it's taken as a slight because there's like a kind of like an almost internal kind of fairness clock, and it's inbuilt to like they've done experiments with um, like rhesus monkeys with this, and like you give them like one monkey like one grape and another monkey like twenty grapes, and he's like, "What the heck are you doing?" Like, so this is somehow like super inbuilt to primate psychology, um, and. Is left over, and and so like it's some kind of moral, like um. What's what's the word? It's moral foundation, like Jonathan Haidt would say. It's kind of a moral foundation.
1: Okay, now, now that we've explored that, explore this. So I can remember in the sixties and seventies, generally there was one person in the household that worked. One that stayed home and families and one that stayed home with children and you had one car and you had a little ranch yeah. style house and and that's what middle class was. And like yeah. and that's one of my sort of global views of life is that if everybody had that then things Pretty would good. be just peachy. Yeah. Except for unless a twenty dollar bill falls on the floor. Yeah, then we got problems. So, so now things have changed. Yes. Now we've got uh, now we have uh, two people working. Yes. And we have two cars in the garage and you can't have a little ranch anymore. You got like a big house, bigger house. Yeah. And um and so so we've got many, many more people working. Yes. And what's been the impact of that with growth?
0: Okay, so how don't know, this? important things to remember. Do you know what hedonic adaption is? I do not. So imagine, like, so I started coming in and every day I brought you this, uh, you know, delicious cappuccino from Starbucks. You know, it's amazing. If suddenly I was like, well, you can't have a cappuccino anymore. You, you know, like, so the first time you get, like, a lot of utility from it, like, oh, it's so good. Then you get less and less and less and less and less going on. So if I gave you, like, instant coffee from star like say, the little instant coffee pack. You'd be like, man, this is gross. Like I'm used to, like this really sucks. But if you had no coffee and I gave you the instant coffee packet, you would like, wow, this is, yeah, coffee. I like coffee. I'm amped up, you know, good to go. Um, so hedonic adaption is the fact that like, and it's always important to keep in mind in your own life is that when, you know, whenever you step up the hedonic, um, ladder to like a nicer car, um, uh, or something like that. It's like the effects are short run and then essentially they get built in soon after that. So I I think a lot of what's been going on, you know, why people have this sense things are worse is because expectations are lower, if that makes sense. So instead of thinking you'll be better off than your parents, you're going to be like the same or maybe worse off. And that is like a big blow because you know, you're going back down the ladder, if that makes sense. And millennials, you know, we have a lot less money on average than uh, boomers did at our age. Like, it's just this, this real fact.
1: Is a, a large portion of that due to growth? Uh,
0: why is that the case?
1: Or, it, yeah, how, how, what is the impact of growth on that?
0: So, the impact of growth. So, in real terms, there hasn't been very much growth. That's the answer to that. It's like, there hasn't been real growth very much real growth and that has caused that to be a problem there's there's more people and shrinking opportunities um and you can feel this just almost in the the ether on my college campuses you know it's like the desperate it's almost desperate the partying and drinking because there's this knowledge that there's just less opportunity and fighting um more hard to just kind of stay in place
1: Uh, one of the things that they, uh, they come across in the paper is that the natural rate of interest is decreased over the last 40 years and near
0: zero. Yeah. So I don't think this is a new trend. Um, you know, there's like a a rough trend line. I I saw a a graph once that showed the interest rates since like old Testament times, (laughs) like, you know, like pre Jesus times and, and it was heading South since then, um, and, you know, it's like a messy, it's a messy graph, right? He's going up and down, up and down, up and down like a uh cardiogram, but it is heading, um, heading South. And the answer is why is that? Um, and Karl Marx had this idea that, you know, the capitalists are done once, um, once interest rates head below zero or head to zero. And that's where we are now. It's like essentially a zero interest rate, negative interest rate environment in Western Europe. I, I and I think his critique is correct in maybe some sense. I don't think it's like destiny, but I do think it's correct in the sense that it is an indication that people have less ideas. Like there's less competition for money for projects to like do things. Like people just have less ideas in general, less good ideas and, and they're less likely to take action to do things. And so there's more competition or less competition for good
1: ideas since we have fewer, I think there's very few good ideas. So
0: there's more competition for them. Yes, uh, you can see this now, especially in like the venture capital industry. This is a shift over the past six years. You know, like, uh, you know, now everyone wants to be working venture capital and they're all competing for less and less good opportunities. Um, where it seems like the real like $20 bills in the sidewalkers is building good companies. Like there's just no one building good companies. And that's emblematic of... And the question is, is like these are a bunch of smart people. So do they realize it's just too hard now? Is it just too painful compared to watching Game of Thrones on Netflix or whatever? I don't know, but it's a it's a real effect, and it's worth thinking about. So, do you think that it's harder to
1: um, to know how to do something like start a company? Like you, you that's one of the things you did is you've been involved with a startup. Is it harder to do that because you just don't know how or is it just harder to have ideas? What What's causing that?
0: I think it's harder to have good ideas. I, I th- there's more knowledge about... It's like, I, okay, I think the fact that thinking about startups is like in the culture and like entrepreneurship is in the culture or these, these ideas is actually like a, a red flag that it's not really happening very much. Like, so it used to just be in the ether. Like, it just happened. You know, like, uh, you know, people would always be starting things. And it's the lowest rate of new company formation. Like, every year it keeps ticking off. Like, there's less and last and less. Um, and I think, like, there's a sense it's too difficult or there's no good ideas or all the frontiers have been used up. But, you know, we can imagine all kinds of areas where this is, like, you know, all kinds of good ideas we could be doing, but we're just not.
1: Uh, I think one of the things that's true is risk plays into this. Like um, you you can think I'll go to college because the statistics show that if you go to college, you have over the course of a lifetime, higher earnings. And so this is sort of my golden ticket. And so I, what I just need to do is go work hard and study hard and I'll get this degree and then I'll be successful. Then I, whereas if you sort of strike out on your own, and start something, then um, there's greater risk because for one thing, you just don't show up and go to class every day. You've got to create it.
0: Yes, I do think it's maybe something like, okay, so what's the alternative? So I, I think in a world with a lot of opportunity, the risk for starting new things is lower Because, like, the alternatives, well, I can just go find something pretty easily, right? I can go work at, you know, I don't know, the factory and and make a solid living if things don't work out. I think now the real risk is slipping out of the middle class. And I think that's what you feel in college is, like, this really sense of foreboding, like, you know, you're, like, on the edge. this understanding you're on the edge of not making it. And slipping down the mobility ladder is very scary for people. And if things don't work out, the risk is much more existential than it used to be. Um, Explain that. So like it used to be, if you're a grand vision for the world, making the world future different, didn't work out. Your alternative was, well, you could definitely go get a job immediately. That was dignified and was high paying. Now I think, it's like if you didn't follow that track and didn't make it, it's like you're off the wagon, buddy. You better, like, you're done. Does that make sense? Like, you, you will, your mobility, social mobility will suffer.
1: So um, now explore. Um, it seems that in the relatively recent past, there was, uh, there was an, uh, it became a popular idea that if you were involved with STEM, like, you were sort of like, more golden if you were in the humanities track in which case you would be an
0: art historian and you would have no future Uh, yes so so i think uh yeah so the the grand illusion i would say here is that um that stem is the savior right in reality I, i i i know i personally benefited from the fact that like i knew the humanities would not you know there's no salvation Which is somehow very, like, a very valuable lesson early seeing the world as it really is, whereas STEM, like, you know, there's still this hubris that, like, oh, like it's salvation right? You just do it and you're fine. But the truth is, like, no, you still have to work just as hard, maybe less, maybe slightly less hard. It's unclear, but um, that is really important to understand. Like, you know, if you look at the engineering fields, like, other than computer science and like probably oil and gas, petroleum engineering, you know, there has been a good engineering field to go into maybe electrical, you know, I don't know. Um, But in the past, like 20 years, like you, you wouldn't make any money going anywhere else. And that, that's a, that's a good example that, you know, it's like there's just fewer and fewer opportunities and, and uh, that makes things difficult for everyone. So, if you do take the
1: gambit, assume the risk. I think of Elon Musk, and he's always he's willing to risk it all. He, he just he astounds me. At like he'll just invest everything because he yeah. feels like it's a good idea. Yeah, a guy with good ideas. Um, uh, what is it about? Is that the difference? Is it that people that are willing to risk? I mean, you 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 went in with a startup, and and there was a good chance of failure, maybe a dominating chance of failure. And what did you learn about uh, through the thus having survived a lot of that? The company survived a lot of that, and uh, seems to be tracking well. What did you learn about? Uh, I mean, was it smooth all the way and you just sort of go in and have your coffee in the morning work along and head home at five or (laughs) it's different than that?
0: Yeah. So a coworker friend and I, I think we talked about this in a previous episode, you know, we counted 12 independent times where we thought there's a greater than 75% chance probability. We we would not be there the next week. Like we would not be around. Uh, You know, like uh, I really hesitate to give advice. I think you should generally be quite skeptical of advice unless someone who's like really close to you. And even then, you know, and this is a piece of advice, right? So it's like, <laughs> yeah, take it as a will. Right. But you should generally be skeptical of advice. Um, I, I think there's like, you know, Elon can do that. There, there's a great book zero to one that describes it's called notes on startups. I highly recommend it to anyone, but there's like this, this reading of zero to one. It's like, wow, like I really should not go into startups. <laughs> like that's probably, that is probably the correct reading of zero to one. It's like, really? Like I should, I should not start anything. Um, which is like counterintuitive. Right. But like when when you're talking to people like that, who, like who should be starting these things? Like, well, it's people like at Google. It's like the engineer at Google who's making half a million dollars a year and sitting around on the beanbag chair, eating M&Ms. Like that's who should be doing these things, right? These are super capable people who are not doing it otherwise. Um you need to understand like where you are and like does your life have kind of product market fit with um startups and things like that? Because you know, it's not it's not for everybody. And I and people take that the wrong way as it's something like attractive and 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 sexy and like cool to do and like Yes, but you need to understand. Like it's like it's it's a pretty serious undertaking, and if you're going to go for it, you need to you need to understand all of it. And Critically you, evaluate.
1: You know, all of life and is a pretty serious undertaking. That's so true. You, it's being able to measure things and quantify them and say, you know, okay, I'm going to give this a whirl, and I'm going to give I'm going to invest this, whether it's time or money or whatever it is. And yeah. And, uh, and, and try it. Yep. And I think you know, then you've got to be able to risk not succeeding. And if it doesn't succeed, what are you going to do? You have to have some plans about that. But Yeah. I'm going to circle back around and pick back up on equity, housing, bonds, and bills. And so what uh, the rate of return of everything said was that um, equities and housing return more than anything else. That's right. And by a significant margin, like... 10 to one or five to one or something like that.
0: That's right. That's right. And, uh, for the sec go after Elon. We're not, uh, this is an investment advice. Like you have bigger fish to fry. <laughs> um, so, uh, do your own research. Um, I want to, yeah. So uh, always important to remember that there's risk and there's, in um, risk and reward and, and people are fairly rational. So, um, especially when evaluating things like this. So equities, where did you want me to go with that? Well,
1: I I think risk and reward is, that's sort of the whole, that's a big part of the entire question. So if we start with housing, what I would say about housing, real estate is that um, uh, the risk is, you know, you can't create, you can't diversify well. Like the, the the three primary considerations in real estate, it's one of those sort of truisms, is location, location, location. Right. Right. So uh, you're going to pick something, but you can only, you know, it's going to be hard to pick more than one. That's right. To initially, and then maybe you can grow in, and maybe over time you could grow into a number of them. But even when you grow into a number of them, they're likely to be in the same community. So, That's right. So get gaining diversity is very difficult with housing and real estate.
0: Yeah, and, and just talking about my personal bias, I like I, I tend to like equities more. I I believe equities um you know they have so real estate does outperform um like in this paper, this is what they talk about. Real estate outperforms equities by small margin. Uh, although there are there's this trade off where transaction costs are much higher for houses. So you know, you can just go buy um, equities, super, you know, like for, you know, Vanguard you go, you pay .01% you know, fees a year to buy and have them manage you know, most of their index funds and then you, you look at houses and you're like, well, I can buy one house at a time in one location and I have to pay property taxes and upkeep and maintenance and, you know, it, it is interesting to me that this paper found that result because it you know, what I've always heard and seen is that, you know, housing really doesn't out- outperform, um, well, real estate and housing kind of two separate things, but doesn't outperform inflation. And I think there's the, there is the truth that there's uh land. That's one thing. And then your house, which is a wearing good. That's important. It's like buying a car, uh, a car and a house are much more similar than people would like to understand, like to believe, um, as a consumption good, you know, it's something you consume over the life cycle. So that's the big dirty secret about a lot of houses. They're meant to last like 30 years till, till the end of a 30-year mortgage and they kind of fall apart, right? You know, like, I don't know, like <laughs> not like by design, but that's just how they're built. Um, and I, I think in that sense, yeah, they probably, it's more a commodity, um, but real estate is, is a bit different in that it it does seem to perform similar to equities or maybe a bit better.
1: Yeah, that that's a, one of the points we should raise. Is we said a lot of this is a measure of risk versus reward. And the big hedge is diversification with risk. So if you can like own all the houses in your state or maybe in the nation or a portion of them, even a small, very small portion, yeah. then you'd be well diversified. And the chances that you would do well would be greatly increased because um, if there's an earthquake somewhere, there's yeah. a fire, or something happened to one house, then that's just a very small part of your holdings, right? Yep. But if it happens to be the house you own, it's a disaster, it's a it's catastrophe. Problem. It's a big, big problem. So diversification is really important, and that leads us directly into talking about equities, which you sort of brushed up against, and that it's really now because of Bogle, really easy, and you might talk about Jack Bogle just a little bit historically, uh, to diversify.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so uh, it is. It's much easier to diversify in equities. Like, you can go, you can buy. There's, like, a fun uh, VT, which is Vanguard Total World Stock Index, and it's, you can buy, for 75 bucks, you can buy a tiny sliver of every single publicly traded company that an American essentially has access to it's not quite the case but it's pretty close Um, and so wow that's pretty easy it's like 75 bucks and go crazy housing you know there are similar equivalents called REITs which are like real estate investment trusts but they don't have every house in America and they don't have every house in the world and it's like usually a select in like the southeast or something and um, that could be okay but it's definitely not as easy and there's also more management fees because it's it's more difficult to administer than uh, housing.
1: And was that Bogle's idea as a graduate student is an index fund where you would literally own a sliver of every company, uh, a representative sample of every company in the country. And
0: yeah, so Jack Bogle's idea. Um, so at Princeton, his senior thesis was the idea of an index fund. Uh, his idea he essentially saw a paper similar to this one. The rate of return of everything 's like well, if you look at the average return of the entire index um it 's like well it 's like ten percent, and if you just took the fees off of that, you know that 's a lot of money over ten years um, and just kind of going back on on how people don 't do big things anymore, it feels like, you know, Jack Bogle, this is his senior thesis in college. I mean, think about that. That's pretty weird, isn't it? Like, he have the senior thesis idea, and he's probably saved, you know, given more money back to investors than anyone else. I mean, I can't imagine how many billions of dollars in value have been given to retirees and, you know, all these pension funds that use uh, Bogle's, uh, you know, Vanguard and and just all the other uh, index funds that have popped up afterwards.
1: You know, you talk about good ideas. He did not only come up with the end. Apparently, he's largely responsible for
0: index funds. So he's large. So people had kind of done it before, but he's he, he popularized popularized uh, index fund investing. And then the
1: the other thing I know him for is uh, low fees and seeing if you could reduce management fees, you could you could your yield, the amount of money you made would just over time would be much, much greater.
0: Yeah. So standard investment funds usually charge two and 20. That means 2% of, um, the amount you have invested every year and then 20% of the returns. And so like, you know, you'd have to outperform the index so brilliantly to make money after two and 20, that it's just like really not possible. There's a couple people that can do it. You know, they, in weird ways, but they have secrets, and it's not—it's not something you can really replicate.
1: And it's one of those things that in that random walk theory is that you, the the market is random, and you can't select the winners, and it's and all that stuff sort of in vain. I mean, that's the idea in any event.
0: Uh, so that's more so the efficient Eugene Fama the efficient market hypothesis. It's the idea. So, um, you know, if you got two people, if you got a hundred people. And they're all measuring the uh, number of M&Ms in a jar. You know, the average is really close to the number. Um, it's very similar. Like If all of the information is public and we all can see that information and everyone is rational, the price will be just about what it should be. Now, big asterisk, asterisk here. You know, So we, if we all see the public financials for Apple – And we all make our own decision, like on average, like the, the price that in Apple is, is, is fairly efficient. So like, why do you get this equity premium then? Um, so you get this equity risk premium because it's volatile. So people, you know, they need money in the short term. So not willing to always invest it in, in, um, more volatile assets like equities because they need to spend it tomorrow. That's one thing. Um, the other way you can make money is uh, inside information. Like so, that's illegal, right? But you know, if you knew there was special information, if you were a lot smarter than everyone else, and everyone missed something, that's another way. Or you know, like so, some people can make money beating the market. And there's people that you know, there has to be there has to be someone to make the market right to to make it efficient. So all the people, you know, there's like a lot of professional people who spend. So if you spent like all your time and you're super smart, you could probably uh, beat the market. But you will also probably, you know, like it's efficient in that it'll kind of just pay for the time you spent doing it. Does that make sense? Um, it's hard to just like critically evaluate other than it being just random and, and get a higher return. If that makes sense.
1: So it's really hard to um, it's it's hard to do anything other than. And then get the market average, which you've got a very reasonable chance to do if you bought
0: minus the fees, entire market. Yeah, yeah so minus you, fees. you do have a much more reasonable chance. Um, and, and well, the important thing to remember, it's like it's super competitive to price it correctly, right? So you've got like all these smart people who have this financial incentive to be correct, and that's what you're going up against. And like you have to be like really good to beat that. And that's that's what uh, which most people miss. Yeah. And, and,
1: but so that's very difficult. But trying to get the market average is
0: is straightforward, straightforward. Yeah, yeah. So you just you're just counting on the equity risk premium, and um, yeah, that that's much, especially over the long term, it's a much easier strategy to
1: follow. And that's what Bogle has sort of brought to Main Street is that you can do that with the index funds, and you can get you can get low fees by cutting out all the man a lot of the management in the right. indexes. You do those two things. And then, the, then Main Street can have can have stocks. That's right. That's, That's right. right. Equities. Equities. That's right. And I, and I, we have talked about this at least as on an aside. Is like there's there might be two reasons that the stock market is where it is, even today during the pandemic, and it's bounced back significantly. That's right. Uh, one of them is money pressure, which I think of as like water pressure. There's yeah. the money's got to go somewhere to be invested. It has to go somewhere. Yep. And we haven't. I don't know if we we haven't gone much to bonds and bills yet, but they have very low yields because interest rates are low.
0: Yeah. So historically, like, oh, do, do you have the paper pulled up by any chance? Uh, don't. Do you have the what the rate of return for bills and bonds has been on average? I don't. Not my fingertips. Okay. Talk for a second. I'll pull it up. Okay.
1: okay. Then what 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 I will say is that um, because uh, rates of return have been low at banks, then that tends to cause pressure to put money elsewhere. And because housing is not much more difficult to invest in, that puts more money pressure on the market, which tends to prop it up uh, during bad times. And I think the other thing is, is that uh, Bogle uh, made Main Street aware that uh, by holding... And and and, the, and realize the market goes up and down. That we you would be able to do well uh, in the long term. So Main Street's not prone to sell off things, and they and That's Main likely. Street holds a lot now. Individual investors hold a lot of the stock market.
0: Yeah, especially you know four hundred one ks. You like incentivize not to sell, and you pay penalties and to withdraw. Um, so I did find the yeah the average unweighted returns for bonds or. In real terms, they are 2.6 percent,
1: and what's inflation these days?
0: Well that's real returns that's adjusted that's for real returns now now, compared to what's the real return for bonds now it's probably it's less than that it's probably less than that because like uh, they would have to return four percent right now to you'd struggle to get a bond that returns that over time and then you've got to pay taxes on the gain. Yeah,
1: then you have transaction fees. On top and it. transaction fees. Yep. So it's, uh, it, it does create a lot of money pressure on the stock market. Yeah. Searching for returns. Searching for returns. Yep. Yep. So that, that explains a lot about uh, – and one of the things I say is that one of the riskiest places long-term put your money's in the bank. Everybody runs to the bank. Your grandmother was like this. Your grandfather was like this. And their generation was like this because they lived through the Depression. So they put their money in the bank because it was safe. Well, that was true in a sense, especially with FDIC and the Fed and all that stuff. But over long term, uh,
0: inflation and taxes chipped away at it. That's right. Yeah, you know, you're losing 2% a year on inflation and, you know... Yeah, and what do the banks do with it for savings accounts? They put it in T-bills, so bills. So, you know, they borrow it from the federal government, and, and then they take some cut, and then they give you that percentage. So Right. So that's one of the riskier ve- investments long term,
1: whereas if you get in the stock market and you hold through the ups and the downs, and at some point
0: in the future you may elect to take some of it out. Well, yeah. So, yeah, it, it does come back to, it's like, what do you mean by risk? Do you mean volatility? Do you mean how much does it go up and down? So for example, houses, like they seem like really low volatility, right? Because you you buy it and then you don't know what price it is. Reality houses probably have similar volatility to equities. Um, Just judging on the returns, they probably have similar volatility. It's just like you don't have this ticker like paying. You don't know. Constantly, yeah.
1: (laughs) You don't have it pinging away. And on the nightly news, they never go and your housing value today it went down five thousand dollars ah
0: handle down it went <laughs> handled down today five percent <laughs> down oh my god yeah no you never hear that which is different okay um
1: so uh we've un- unpacked a lot of this and yeah um would you, would you like to summarize some of your thoughts about the rate of return of everything and what you think it means?
0: Yeah. So I, I I think the, the big takeaway from the rate of return of everything, um, was kind of confirming my biases a little bit about equities being, you know, especially for someone like me, a younger person, that's the place you want to go. That's the place you want to be thinking about if you, um, if volatility does not bother you. So if you don't, it, so if it dropped in half, like if that doesn't bother you, a lot of people psychologically, it's, it, you know, investing is mostly a psychological game. Uh, and whether you can handle losses and a lot of people have a lot of trouble with that. I think it's inbuilt to human nature. You know, most people would much rather avoid losing than winning. Uh, I think that's like a, it's the truth about human nature. that's important to keep in mind and incorporate important to keep in mind about yourself. Um, in investing equities it's interesting the most surprising thing to me in the paper was real estate actually outperforming equities that that was I did not expect that
1: um I I agree about that and um and they're very similar there might be a small edge to housing but it's it's not very large and one of the points i should make and, and probably is and people are familiar with this and some may not be is that you've never lost anything in the stock market until you sell it yeah. so it, if the stock market and it has during my lifetime it's gone down half yeah and which I mean, was it it, it it will get your attention when it does that but it also lets you know that the one thing you can't do is realize your loss you can't sell then
0: Yeah. Well, it is, it is important to remember though. So if you buy a basket of equities, like you'll tend to get something, maybe you'll get something similar to the returns. I think returns will be lower just because interest rates are lower. That's so important to keep in mind lower than what, you know, is is stated in the paper, which is like what, 10 some odd percent. I think they will be much lower than that. I think equities will still remain higher than bonds and bills for the foreseeable future just due to the current interest rate environment and that seems to be like a, a solid trend you could count on. Knock on microphone stand, um, but that, that's just something to keep in mind. Is uh, just you know you never want to invest more than you can afford to lose, and 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 what you would need in the short run because in the short run lots of crazy things gonna happen.
1: I think that's that's a, a, a couple of things about that I agree with is uh, if you're in equities you're in for the long run. Yes, that's, that's I mean, important that, to remember. The entire paper is about the long run, and that's what we're talking about. So you don't buy a house and sell it next week or next month or even next year. Everybody yeah. would know that would yep. be a risky proposition. And, you, and I wouldn't be willing to go into the stock market with that kind of time wind frame yep. either, that time window. So going in when you're young and having plenty of time to learn and study and observe and watch your money grow, uh, seems to be really key, and one of the things I really encourage young people to do is because you if need that yeah. large time, that long time under the long
0: run. Yeah, time matters more than almost anything else. Time, fees matter more than anything else. Um, and so we talked about one more thing. We talked about returns, um, and this is the raw returns, real returns. That does not include fees, um, and you know, I encourage everyone to go out there and just look at your 401k and see the fees. I remember, you know, I there's a there's a formula you can use. We won't talk about it today to calculate expected returns based on the dividend yield and a couple other things. Jack Buggle used it. Um, I think it's a useful tool. I wouldn't use it for its predictive power, but I think it's good to think about. You know, um, I think right now, like a 401k that I use has um, fees that are equivalent to probably a quarter of the returns. (laughs) Expected returns year over year, right? And that's pretty standard in the industry and that is a massive amount. I want people to understand 1% of fees is huge. Yes, it's huge because if you're only getting, let's say you get you know, nowadays 6% real, 4% real returns, say 4%. That's a quarter of your returns, which you know, it's a lot of money. It's a lot of money, and what you know, people often spend
1: more time um, mowing their grass during the week uh, than they do reviewing their retirement portfolio or their financial situation. And it doesn't take a lot of time, and yeah. you certainly don't have to be a rocket scientist or a brain surgeon. Yeah, uh, you know, I think that one of the beauties that Bogle and Vanguard brought we've mentioned them several times and it's because it it's easy to understand and very helpful um, one of the beauties of the, what they've recommended is uh, they it's something that you can understand it's something you can appreciate it's something you can be involved with and take advantage of and that's what they brought to Main Street in America
0: yeah I think it's quite good it's, and it's a very elegant idea it's like what if you could capture the returns in this paper like that's all we want to do like and um, he he wrote a book right before he died called Enough. I love this book. It's called Enough. He's like, well, you know, Jack Bogle. He's a pretty wealthy person. By the time he died, he's like worth probably eighty million dollars. He's like, you know, he's like I've flown in first class, and it was nice, but eh, you know, it's not that much. You know, ten percent returns like that's enough, and it's a lot. You know, he's gonna make like he's like I've got eighty million dollars, and you know, in, in terms of. Visionaries that captured a percentage of their uh, their value created bogle is way down there like it didn 't capture very much, so their big rival 's fidelity and for the fidelity family um, i can 't remember the the name of the owners, but you know they 're all super wealthy, and that 's always a sign right you know if you 've got a super well you know if your financial manager is really wealthy, you know you should be curious about that yes. You keep your eyes open.
1: Because he got part of it by putting his hand in your pocket. Yeah. Somebody's pocket.
0: Exactly. Exactly. And so that's how much the finance industry makes money or has made money in the past. People are much wiser now, but it's in selling, um, securities and taking a rider and like 2% of, a, of, um, management fees sound small, but in reality, you make a ton of money. I'll even 1%. You mentioned even that. 1%, so even 1%. Even like at least 401ks, 1%, um, is, is huge and, and will really need your returns. Um. This also reminds me, automated investment systems are better because removing the psychological and human helmet, like things that automatically invest are much better than um, you having to think about it because I think, you know, it's easy to get rattled and have questions.
1: Yes, yes. And, you know, there's, that's a good point about uh, if you turn on the TV and you see some investment product, well, it ain't cheap to buy that TV, time. So,
0: yes, you, you should always... Yeah, you should always be skeptical about people's investment advice because, generally, you know, people have incentives to occlude. and and generally, you know, like if someone's giving you investment advice on like whatever the what is the MSNBC invest business channel, you should be very skeptical because you know, unless it's Jack Bogle, because he's you know he created a trillion dollar company, he's only worth eighty million dollars. They manage a trillion dollars and he's only worth $80 million. He's a smart person. Well, that's what I'm telling you. He's given that money to someone else, and that's, that's you know.
1: Yeah, that, that, and, you know, for those interested in the podcast and in this subject, that's a great place to start reading is because of just what you said is somebody that has that much under management but realized, I mean, $80 million, anybody would love to have that, but when the comparison is. Uh, Compared
0: to, like, the other people in the field, it's yeah. nothing. Uh, and he, you know, I would, I would actually, even before I looked at Vanguard, I would look at Bogle's books.
1: Yeah, that's great advice.
0: Yep, great.
1: Okay, well, it's good to see you again. It's good to be here on the podcast. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time on
0: Narratives. Thanks. Well, that's our show for today. I'm Will Jarvis, and I'm Will's dad. Join us next week for more Narratives.